you can't you can't say that with the Freud chapter. I mean, uh, yeah, that was that was the idea. Plenty of Freudian slips where you say one thing and you mean your mother. The classic. All right, gentlemen. Well, are we ready to okay. get rolling? So ready. What? What? No, I'm just. I, <laughs> Say that's what she said, but uh, the I, I'm just thinking like Freud's entire career. Freud's oh. entire career is just saying that's what she said to, Actually, ev- to everything that happened. Every every single well, thing. Yeah, that's totally correct. You ever you ever wonder with a lot of these writers where they like they make these like really broad sweeping statements like everything is sex and you just have to ask them like no I think that's a you thing like. I think it's just yeah, I think, you I think have kind of a dirty mind and are dead convinced that everything is sex and you're projecting it onto all of us. Well, it was Freud being like, this is the, the one that I'm glad I don't have to summarize this because it's a bit where he's like, oh yeah, here are the obvious four phases of sexual development. There's the mouth phase, then the anal phase, then the phallic phase, and finally the genital phase culminating in intercourse. And you're like, okay, that's humanity. That's our entire, that, that's it. That's all. That's it. That's all. That's all there is, huh? Really? I'm thinking of of like a very horny sphinx, and it's like, what are what what has a mouth in the morning? Uh, you know, and then it, it, it goes to the floor. floor <laughs> it's like it's humanity. It's, it's <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And here we are in the lovely month of April, coming at you with chapters uh, six and seven of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's been a hot second, but we are back in in, in our seats, back in the command chairs and ready to, you know, uh, just get rolling. But before we do that, uh, Steven, what are you drinking right now? Well, Brevin, I am very glad you asked. It is Bright Week, Christ is Risen, and in celebration, I've poured myself a lovely glass of Laphroaig Quarter Cask. Uh, this is my favorite whiskey. It's the Ooh. traditional something good has happened, and therefore we drink it. Uh, and so I am very much enjoying this lovely whiskey. Wow, you're celebrating two weeks later? You're hilarious. So <laughs> this is this is one where I'll actually kind of give it to the Catholics, like, yeah, Orthodox are just kind of being ridiculous with their whole, like, calculation of it. It's like, Jews have Pasch- uh, pa- Passover. He literally called this event Pascha, which means Passover. Just set it on the Passover. <laughs> like, come on, guys. <laughs> Sam, what are you drinking? Well, I'm drinking um, an old-fashioned, Evelyn is bourbon. But this old-fashioned actually has a bit of a narrative behind it. And the narr- and as why I was late to getting here to record today. Because I was making it old-fashioned, I had like three minutes for the episode, and so I was quickly pouring the whiskey into the glass, and two shots for an old-fashioned, so I pour two shots, and I'm mixing it, and I, you know, I get my bitters, and my simple, and a little dash of water, drop my ice cube in it, and it's like, it's at the edge of my rocks glass. And I'm convinced this is fine, and my wife is like, there's something wrong with that old-fashioned. And I realized that I poured four shots of bourbon into it. I was using the large side of the jigger instead of the small. And so in an effort to get through this episode, I'm frantically um, trying to figure out what to do. So I, I grab a funnel and a bottle and I pour half the old fashioned into the bottle and save it for later, um, spilling quite a large amount of it over the counter. So now I'm cleaning the counter and that's why I was late to our episode today. So I've got old fashioned here, old fashioned to go, 
It's pretty tasty. Very nice. I was hoping you were going to say, so I grabbed a funnel, stuck it in my mouth, and shotgunned that thing as fast as possible. And then it's like, <laughs> all right, we're going to, this is going to get real fun at the half hour mark. Uh, as for myself, I'm also drinking uh, an old fashioned. Um, nothing really notable about it. It's, it's pretty average, except for, of course, I have my uh, black walnut bitters in it, which is always, uh, always I, a good addition. I use the same bitters, mm-hmm. just a couple dashes of those. But yeah, you might say that we're bitter buddies. What was the last time that we were all we were all getting getting a little little turned together? When was the last time we did that? Normally, one of us we were hanging like out or um, at Brevin's. Well, sure, but like on the episode, I mean. Oh yeah, it's been a while since every since everyone has actually had a drink. Someone always has tea or, uh, or, or apple juice or or apple juice. You know, I've I've learned my lesson. I I get made fun of whenever I just bring tea on, and so if it's not lunch, I gotta have gotta have alcohol. Right, the kids at school will make fun of me if I don't. Uh, well, let us get right on rolling. Uh, so as uh, we have said, we are still working our valiant way through Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. We are on chapters six and seven, the titles of which are for uh, chapter six, Sigmund Freud, Civilization and Sex. And chapter seven, the new left and the politicization of sex. So quite spicy topics uh, in in quite a number of ways. Uh, but we're going to do our best to, you know, just just push on through without too many double entendres, although I suspect it will be unavoidable. And honestly, a supercut will likely be in order by the time uh, we finish. So, uh, Sam, do you want to just take mm-hmm. us briefly into chapter six, you know, just show us the lay of the land a little bit. Yeah, so um, basically chapter six is Truman summarizing Freud's arguments about sex, which are quite extensive because anything that Freud wrote seems to relate back to sex in one way or another. Um, But the actual meat of the argument is pretty simple. Freud moves sex from private to public. And he does this in, he's really one of the first thinkers to do this fully and popularize this move. Obviously, the romantics were quite uh, sexually adventurous, but that was more cordoned off to, you know, a a small part of society. It wasn't a full social move. Freud is making the scientific argument that really sex is a far more significant part of our identity. Um, He argues that to be human and the peak of, uh, sorry, he argues that the goal of life should be happiness and that you reach happiness through um, sexual pleasure. And so therefore, um, to be human must be to be sexual and to pursue that pleasure. Um, this leads to sex becoming public because um, the, the, the society is built out, out of humans. Humans are sexual. Therefore, our society must be concerned with uh, sex. It leads to the sexualization of children because sex is a vital, in, in Freud's case, is a vital part of um, our identity as humans. And so therefore, it doesn't have any beginning it's always there. And he critiques religion as oppressive of this innate sexual desire. All of this is under the guise of science and is backed up by this new legitimacy that previously um, has simply not existed. So I'm curious, what do we think of this move to um, a sexuality to the public space? If we accept Freud's premise that yet sex is a core part of our being um, and, and particularly pleasure in that space, d- does it follow correctly that it must become a matter of uh, public interest? So here's, this is probably the biggest quibble I have with this book. I think on the whole, he, well, I had no reason to assume not, I'm not a Freudian expert, but 
he does a pretty good job discussing Freud, a lot of his beliefs and whatnot, but then kind of just quickly writes him off as, well, he's been subjected to devastating criticism by Karl Popper, and then just kind of moves on and says, like, yeah, and therefore he's wrong. It's like, Popper just att attacked his methodology. And I, I'm inclined to agree with Popper in that, yeah, you're pretty much saying a lot of stuff that can't be backed up with evidence and then trying to say, therefore, it's science, which it's, I mean, that's not, that's not good science, but also, I mean, philosophy does stuff like that, where you, there's no hypothesis that you test in philosophy, but we don't say that's not a form of knowledge. And I would say psychology kind of has a similar phone. So it just that, that being a, a slight moment to offer some amount of criticism to, to Truman. Um, but I mean, regardless of whether or not, um, regardless of whether or not uh, he's correct in this, I mean, Freud obviously had a massive impact in this bringing of sex into the public square. I mean, I, I don't see any good coming from it. It doesn't seem to have led to any amount of health. Um, may, maybe Freud had a point in that, like, if you keep everything repressed, if you keep everything bottled up, it's not going to be good for you. And therefore having at least some amount of maturity to be able to talk about it. Um, maybe you could offer a defense around that. Maybe a defense around sexual education. Apparently studies have shown that the more sex ed you have, the more the, the fewer unwed pregnancies, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. Although, you know, they didn't really have unwed or they didn't have a ton of unwed pregnancies back then because you just got them married. And that was that. So um, I think you can offer an apology for Freud, but I think it's 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 got to be a nuanced one. Yeah, I think I see your point there, Stephen, in, in terms of how he writes off Freud. But in some sense, he he does get the point across because the point of Freud isn't any one of his particular ideas. Although I think the one that's most interesting is the idea that repression is necessary to build society, which I think is true, just not how Freud thinks it is. But the the the, the point of Freud, as, as you said, is much more as a philosopher. It doesn't really matter whether the specific, we have an id, an ego, and a superego. The important thing is that the Overton window has shifted to view sexuality as the central construct that has to be discussed when you're talking about how society functions on a core level. And then you'll see this taken and expanded by other philosophers or, you know, philosophers who are writing in the Marxist historical mode, which sort of takes them to be scientists in a strange way, scientists of, of, of history, perhaps. Um, so I, I I think it's it's the Overton window, like you said, and then also but there also very much is with Freud the movement of centralizing sex in society, but as something that is managed by science and scientific language, that it, it moves away from the realm of morality and a thing to be dealt with by moral education, with social norms. It's rather, you know, what is the actual like quantifiable outcome? Like do you know, certain particular sexual activities cause you to go blind, it appears not based on the data. And therefore, the justification for discouraging it becomes harder to justify because the only uh, reasonable language of justification is science at that point, which is the movement and the place that we, that we very much find ourselves in. There's a philosophical side, but then there are, you know, thousands, if not millions of uh, scientists in labs all over the world, slavishly devoted to, you know, creating studies that back up their particular worldview, which is a quite the quite situation to be in. I I think I yeah. would I would say here that maybe the overarching problem is the probably the enlightened the enlightened problem of or a project of justifying morality, um, but the enlightened project of trying to make everything science 
I mean, this uh, kind of ultimately uh, finding its apotheosis in Hume saying pretty much you have to verify everything scientifically. Or, I mean, he he does allow for, I guess, deductive approaches. But the overall shift of everything is science now, o- the only things that can be verified are scientific. And so Freud pretty much saying, well, if we want to say any meaningful sentences about sex, we need to bring it into a scientific rather than an ethical or a philosophical um, realm, we need to bring it into a scientific realm, and the only morally significant statements we can say are the ones backed with science. And so I wonder mm-hmm. if this problem, actually, no, I, I don't wonder, I think I would contend that this this problem is far uh, more extensive than Freud. No, I, I think that that's, I, I agree, like, that was kind of the move that I think Truman identified, and also I see as like probably one, more, one of the more significant parts of Freud is moving this thing that was traditionally seen to be spiritual slash like very personal, at least in nature, right? Even the romantics, it was like they went over the top with their subjective personal language about this of like, it was like, well, my, my heart says I got to do it. So I, I, my hands are tied. It's, 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 it's um this v- very personal experience and Freud takes that and turns on its head and says, well, no, that's, it's universal. It's gotta be universal. And here's science backing it up. And so like, like Popper's critique of him, like, yeah, I, I think that, you know, Truman doesn't give that enough. Uh, I, I don't know. He, does, he, he just kind of dismisses him using that, but like Popper's critique of um, methodology is, I don't know, probably the best critique that you can make on Freud's own grounds, right? Is of methodology. You can't critique like the teleology of it or the metaphysics of it. It's only methodology. And that's um that's a problem because the idea can still stick in our consciousness for, you know, for for centuries after after that, even though like most psychologists would agree that Freud was just wrong on so many things. He's still like the one of the highest figures and best known figures in psychology and well regarded for that. Um, yeah. And there's also the the aspect to which it's just so much more ex- explicit in Freud that there's just no apology, again, for bringing these things that used to be private, moral, spiritual into just pure mainstream, like the romantics, maybe a little bit, they'll be like, you know, angels speak to me in the tree, in the storm, in the waterfall, I want to have five wives, God is literally grass. And it's sort of like, just like a little part of what they say, but it's it's, it's not the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But Freud is, is just like, here are the four stages, and all of them are sexual, everyone is all always thinking about all the time you're all thinking about it right you guys are all about sex right like i like I, I know i'm all about sex you guys are too right like everyone is all the time all the time all the time and that's like just his entire thing and it's like uh one yeah. chill two stop being gross i'm not familiar with freud terribly outside of of, of of truman but the narrative just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense it's definitely has the flavor of one of those things that um you know you have your thesis and then fill in everything behind it uh, like the, the 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 periods of of sexuality, I don't remember all of them, but the the point was there was a little latent period where like, and then um, nothing happens for a while until uh, stuff starts happening again because it's like, well, actually, yeah, you can't perfectly fill in everything behind the theory, so we're just gonna have the the hand wavy period of uh, sexual development where we can just kind of say, oh, you must just be having a very late or an early or a whatever latent period where nothing's happening. And so uh, don't worry about it. My theory is not invalidated. This is just the, the part of the exception that, that proves the rule or whatever. The, the part that I did like about Freud conceptually uh, is the idea of uh, uh, civilization and what it costs to build mm. civilization. And the idea was something along the lines of, you know, in the state of nature, um, everyone just wants to have an orgy all the time. The problem is, 
then the only the strongest guy you know gets in the room w with all the ladies this makes everyone sad so everyone sort of collectively represses a little bit and chooses to have you know instead of everyone having everyone's wife maybe you know in early societies we all just have like three wives or four wives like a couple of you yeah just yeah, just a, just a couple wives you know just a couple wives um and then you know as civilization gets more and more advanced you trade your number of wives uh for higher levels of material security and being able to survive and and, and that's a trade-off that people are, yeah. are willing to make it's like i'm not sure i can get sex all the time i'd like to live longer so that i can have more sex over a longer period of time even if i have fewer wives in general um and i think that it, it i'm curious as to your thoughts because that that strikes me as parallel yeah. to a lot of other true arguments like the, the one that, that comes to mind is right you know the reason that like the truly awesome pieces of, of of architecture of you know cathedrals it's not about uh the technological ability it's what you believe that that allows you to to construct something like that and it seems to me that there's that there's an, an, an echo in freud of that same idea yeah absolutely i mean this is a part this is actually part i was gonna bring up that exact question so i'm glad that you hit on it about like this this one part of that piece, Civilization and Its Discontents, which I now want to read because it sounds really fascinating. Like, yeah, he's like, he's kind of just taken a really gross take on it and it's just all sex. But if you strip away the sex, sorry, <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> uh, no, um, I'm not cutting it out. Oh, no. um, if you World remove 12. the sex from the, <laughs> if you remove the sex from his argument and just make it about like building civilization, I mean, yeah, that's like, a correct point that's just a truism about liberal society it's constantly a trade-off and a balance between you know happiness which we gain via freedom and security which we gain via state power and you constantly have to balance those and there's no society that's all freedom and there's no society that's well most societies are not all state power at least and when when you do that it's no longer I mean, it's this completely different philosophy at that point um so there's still i mean there's this whole balancing act and he seems to recognize that yeah you're going to need to do that and it's going to be uncomfortable um i think where he what's interesting about his point is he said he's very pessimistic in that like we can never really achieve like it'll never be fulfilling because we can only be happy if we have perfect freedom and we can never have perfect freedom because we're always going to need some amount of security. Um, and I would wonder what he'd say to Rousseau. It's actually a question I want to pitch to you guys is what would he say to Rousseau's point um, in the social contract, which I think Truman talked about earlier, where it's like, well, it's a simple solution. You just make people, you, just con you, you form people in such a way to want what's good for the state. And then people can be perfectly free because you don't need to restrict them, to, you don't need to force them into anything they don't already want. And I think it's a very, it's a, it's a nice, succinct argument. It's, it's not possible, but it's a great argument. And Freud definitely doesn't engage with that at all. So, what do you guys think about about that? Does Rousseau answer Freud well? Uh, just really briefly before we get into that, because I think that is a good question. Um, I, I did want to kind of riff on what you said of like this is, or what both of you said about like this is actually strip away all the the sexual uh, connotations that he's bringing into it, and you actually have arrived at a rather profound truth. Except, I mean, yes, I guess profound truth in that it reaches to kind of the core of humanity, but it's also one that, like, people have been saying the last 10,000 years. Like, yes, this just in. You put aside your immediate desires to, go, to achieve the greater good. Yes, this just in. You don't 
eat the chocolate cake because you're going to gain calories and you desire the greater good of looking like a not 600 pound man over the immediate good of getting some sugar. Like you strip all the like weird sexual stuff out of Freud. And it's just like, yes, congratulations. You've discovered how to not be run by your base impulses. Yeah. Yeah. You've discovered basic anthropology. Good, exactly. Good so I, I, I guess I want to give him credit and uh, like, I, yeah, I, I want to give him credit, but it's like, you haven't, you haven't actually said much there, guy. Like, the only thing you do is make humans even more sexual. Well, well I mean, he does say something. As What he contributes to the conversation is he says that, like, not only is this a truism, but it means that we're going to be forever unhappy, right? We're going to be forever dissatisfied because, yeah, discontents, right? Because we're never going to be able to reach our core content, which is just to be, to be the alpha the alpha gorilla who has access to the entire pool. And that's, that's what you, that's what you need in order to be, um, in order to be content. So I don't know, maybe that's what he's contributing to it. And so maybe it's, maybe it's wrong to give him so much credit of like, he's hitting on these correct, like these just very correct political points, but I don't know. I mean, let me, let me take a crack at this. Cause this is something that I've, that I've been thinking about as, as, as well, which is to say, I think you're correct, Stephen, and that it's, it's not a complicated thought. It's just saying, Hey, delayed gratification is a good idea and it's like yeah okay yes this is this is a true thought that many people have realized for uh a very long time i think and so you're correct i i poorly stated it but let me try to to restate what i think is the interesting idea perhaps at the heart of this which you know as uh some uh, good philosophers had said the best the best thinking is never going to be about discovering the best new idea it's going to be reminding and restating for a new generation the the good things that we already know but we've forgotten so in that sense there's the, there's already some merit in it but here's the the secondary one which is to say in in freud's account of society there is repression of base urges and base instincts necessary to construct a larger edifice outside of people which is to say that there is uh sacrifice not unneeded sacrifice, but sacrifice that is truly a loss, if that makes sense. It's repression. You're, you're taking a part of yourself that is good and you will be happy if it is allowed to happen and you are murdering that part of it for the good of a larger social goal. But the interesting thing is that is a secular account of society, that, that, that all of the goods are incompatible and we have to lose some of them in order to, to gain all of them. I think a perhaps more a deeper level and a more interesting idea is that of what does the a Christian anthropology do with that account? Because in that case, it's not repression of base urges that's necessary. It's baptizing the base urges or realizing the true, fully compatible set of goods that are that's the underlying true nature of the set of base desires that have been corrupted and that has made them incompatible. And that's the move that Christians need to make uh, in order to become their 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 full selves is to, it's not repression in, in any way. It's realizing the parts of those desires, which are slavery, which then allows you to purge those parts, not repress them, but rather realize that they're not the essential and good part of it and actually build something better uh, in yourself and then in your community society as a whole. Yeah. I mean, one of the best examples of that is John Paul II's um, you know, love and responsibility, which, you know, I mean, if, if you want to talk about, uh, if you think that Freud is like overly um, obsessed with sex, I mean, it's not necessarily obsessive, but I mean, he speaks 
so highly of the sexual union as a celibate man, which is very, which is, it's, it's a wonderful work. Yeah. But again, it's, it's completely baptized and completely transformed into something like not even transformed. It's just, I, I don't know. I'm trying to find the right word. I, I think like not transformed, not refined, but it's like a purified form, but it's purified by addition almost. So I, I hate to be a contrarian here because I actually love everything that's being said. Um, however, Freud would say, uh-huh, that process is called sublimation. Like, I mean, like he, 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 like he coined that sublimation. Yeah. You, you take, you want to build the great architecture. You want to build a beautiful building. Yeah. It's because you're repressing your sexual desires. Um, and to an extent, I, I think I, the church would be like, it, I mean, the church would, would, would turn around and say like, yeah, we've been calling that baptizing for the last 2000 years. Welcome to the club. Um, they're just both approaching the same phenomenon from fundamentally different worldviews. And so maybe I'm not being complete contrarian, but I guess I, especially with some of these thinkers whom we vastly disagree with, I, I do want to be careful that we don't just write them off completely. Because, I mean, yeah. Freud was brilliant. He was, I think, wrong. And he was kind of a pervert. But he was brilliant. And, like, we need to take him seriously. And I think he he would, I, I believe he anticipates this sort of criticism and says, no, this is, this is you repressing your sexual desires in order to do something good for you. He, he, he doesn't, I, I believe he doesn't view repression as wrong um, or a bad thing over repression is, um, but so is under repression. Like the, the, the rapist is not properly repressed. He needs to be repressing his desires. He, he has desires that are out of his control, but the person who freaks out whenever they hear the word sex, Freud would say they are overly repressed. I, I believe that's in general, how his, his framing of the situation goes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's just a coldly scientific way. It's a different way of thinking about it is we assume when he says something about like, well, happiness is what it means to be human and happiness is to have sexual pleasure. So therefore, sexual pleasure, like you can only be fully human if um, you have complete sexual pre- pleasure. Steve, I think what you're hitting on is that he doesn't expect that. And so it's like the leap from, I guess, like the more, um, again, the more, what would I say, like, uh, spiritual, teleological, like, uh, objectively, you know, you know, like, like universal ethicists, you know, McIntyre and such would, if they were saying something about like, this is a core um, pillar of human nature, like, obviously, you must achieve that. And what Freud's saying is he's like, yep, to be human is to be sexual and to be completely sexual free. Well, but you can't have that. So you're just going to be discontent. Cool. And like, that's what it's exemplified in his, in his conversation about religion, where, uh, what what strikes Truman, I think, kind of hits him a little bit hard, at least by the tone that he writes it with, is how coldly uh, Freud dismisses religion. It's, it's not it's not like a simple dismissal. It's like he's giving it a fair shake, and he's like, "Yep," and it is an illusion in these childish ways, and it's like a very methodical scientific takedown. Um, and so, like maybe maybe what we're kind of running up against is like our 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 method is usually to like try to find out what is good for human nature and and then shoot for that. And Freud's like, well, this is what this is what is human nature. You're never going to get there. But that's just the way it is. And he's only concerned with describing and not necessarily prescribing uh, the way that society should be built. Uh, as far as I can tell, maybe he's written other things about that that weren't, uh, you know, weren't here in Truman. But that's yeah. my that's why I can tell. I think the session uh, point is is well taken. I think there's still a distinction to be made between like tamping down desires and or, or redirecting desires and you know transformation. I mean that's that's sort of the 
the, the key, you know, are, are you, are, are you spirit or, or are you just like an animal who has like, all right, I'm going to go uh, carve the Pieta because I just, I, I didn't, you know, my Tinder date didn't work out. Right. That's, that's, that's the Freud model. And on the other uh, side of it too, in terms of it being scientific, it, it also just runs up and this is where the popper critique comes in. It is just an unfalsifiable premise because it's saying, ah, the core motivation for everything is sexual is 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 literally having sex uh and if anyone ever does anything that is not having sex it's because they want to but they decided to divert their sexual energy into doing that instead like you could say that everyone uh you know really really wants to play Yu-Gi-Oh, but they sublimate that into being president of the united states it's it not quite as as equally ridiculous considering that sexuality is fairly core to human existence but it's a similar type of I don't want to say non-serious mm. argument, but the type of argument that you have to dismiss and instructed in the end. Mm. What kind of what a lame anthropology, to be completely honest. Like, even if it's true, I mean, he is coming from at it from a Darwinian perspective, presumably, in that, like, yeah, humanity needs to pass on its genes, and so this just goes down to the core. But like, what a lame view of happiness. Like, really, you think that the only time you're actually truly happy is when you're having sex? Like have you experienced no joy in your life, you poor, sad man? Like, it, this is it? Uh, and it just seems, I don't know, it just, like, you're, even if it's true, as a psychologist, you'd almost look at this and be like, man, you're going to cause a lot of people a lot of misery by convincing them that everything not sex is actually just them deluding themselves into thinking that they're happy. Like, come on, man, that, that's just so pathetic. Well, speaking of sad and pathetic men, uh, well, and, and women too, for that matter. But chapter seven is the new left and the politicization of sex, which I, describes actually a, as you as you do that. Can I make one point to make that turn? Stephen, your point that you made earlier here about the um about how like maybe it's really not that influential, right? It's just like he's saying these things, but really it's like kind of aligning with basically what we all agree, like in class in like traditional you know general classical liberal Western society. But the one big shift that he makes is by pushing sex into the public sphere. I mean, everything else he says really doesn't change much in the political realm. And he has these ideas and this weird anthropology and like this weird horniness, and that's fine. But pushing sex into the public realm in this cold, calculating, and absolutely de-sanctified way, I think is probably his biggest impact, as we see in chapter seven. I I would be very much inclined to agree with you. I, I think you're you're spot on there. Um yeah. Uh yes, Brevin, shame on you. Women can be second rate deviant philosophers as well. This is an equality. Um so yes, the uh, chapter seven, uh the new left and the politicization of sex. And this focuses primarily on two philosophers and then kind of follows it up with two more philosophers. So we have um, Herbert Marcuse and something Reich. I forget what his uh, first name is. Wilhelm. Wilhelm Reich. Really unfortunate last name there, buddy. And both of them, they take Rousseau's psychologizing, psychologizing of the self. They take that, they take Freud in moving the self uh, to sex, uh, to, to linking the two. And then they take Marx and they make the whole thing political, which is such a weird, unintuitive move. It can't help but be fascinating. It's honestly really interesting listening to their ideas um, and just marveling that people paid them to write this stuff down. Um, so basically, uh, Marcuse and Reich, according to Truman, represent uh, or are fighting against 
different forms of political oppression. Uh, Marcuse is confronting post-war America in its decadence, in its uh, rampant capitalism, in all of the kind of luxuries that it sees. And he views this as Brave New World, as Huxley's Brave New World. Reich is confronting post-war Germany in the absolute devastation. I, I think he moved to America, but still, like, that's his primary concern. What happened to Germany? Why did it completely lose its mind? Where did all this tyranny come from? And he views this as the kind of 1984. But both of them view state oppression as actually repression. Uh, both believe that um, the family unit is actually kind of this... Um, cultivator of oppression that we are being raised to view um or to, to to view reality through the kind of the family unit which is inherently oppressive and uh that gets us kind of ready to be oppressed by the state we just kind of view it as normal both of these are are marxists um all, all of this is done in a very marxist lens the the state is oppressing people through sexual repression and the the idea of sexual repression as part of this apparatus is just kind of a, a further criticism of the family um that sexual morals are actually just the state kind of inserting its control into yet another aspect of life um and then following up with these two um, are Simone de Beauvoir and Shulamith Firestone. And they take this sort of criticism and add a layer of feminism to that in, say, in saying that this is particularly oppressive to women. Uh, they are then viewed as kind of a slave class. Their, their primary and actually only real jo uh, job is to have and raise children. And that in itself is inherently oppressive. I suppose the the question I'd like to kick off. I I guess I'm I I'll never stop being belligerent and saying. Well, to be fair, although with these guys I'm definitely a lot uh, less willing to do that, just given they're so weird. Um, but to be fair, is there oppression within repression? Um, I I think we need to take this idea of the gay kid. He's been he was born gay he's felt nothing but affection towards men he has never felt any sort of interest in women that like he's felt this in his entire life he can't pray the gay out he can't change his mind that's a pretty rough situation to be in what what are we to say what are we to view this statement of no you cannot you cannot approach the same sex in this particular mode you cannot be romantic uh, if not oppression then what is this it's a good question i mean it's I think that it's focusing in on a tiny, I think that it comes from an over-exaltation of sexuality in general, right? Because Freud was not necessarily like looking at, you know, LGBT issues um, extensively, but he was exalting sexuality mm -hmm. highly and culture responded to that. And so when you make sexuality a core part of one's being, then naturally anything else would seem oppressive. However, if you, if sexuality is merely one of many goods that are ordered that fit into an ordered teleology but that none of which are sorry it was the third time i've used teleology in this i'm sounding like a sophomore philosophy student i'm sorry but um you know if if it's just one of many goods that you um that you have been blessed with as as nature being a human and you're not able to access that then it's just merely okay well that's okay because there are other goods and ultimately the the greatest good of being you know a, a fulfilled uh spiritual being in as a christian right i mean that would be the christian uh ethic 
And so I don't know, it's not to say that the church is to blame for that, but it is to say that like the continuing perpetuation and even the worsening of it may be partially connected to the church, which would exalt the heterosexual marriage as like the highest form of sexual satisfaction and therefore amazing, right? And only focus on the sexual aspect of it. But then when somebody comes out, well, okay, well, there's also chastity. That's also a thing too. And that's a thing for you particularly. And that is a very unpersuasive argument. It's disingenuous and it's destructive. And I mean, I'm sure that I know Truman's going to get into this a little bit, especially in his last couple chapters about like missteps and such. But I think that that's kind of what you're getting at here is like, we, is that it's it's a direct connection from Freud. And you didn't really have this this situation where it's like, well, if I can't access that particular good of being a procreative monogamous marital union, then I'm unfulfilled. Freud strips away a lot of that and just makes it sexual and just makes it se- particularly pleasure. And therefore the type of pleasure or the person you have it with does not matter. And indeed, that's the explicit argument of the new left, right? It doesn't, love is love, doesn't matter who it's with. Well, Freud would say it doesn't matter who it's with necessarily, or he would probably assent to that. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it's just, unless it, unless it doesn't relate to your mom, in which case then it doesn't matter. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know how he would respond to that necessarily, but there's definitely, I, I, I don't think that he would be necessarily opposed to the idea, a more full understanding of the purposes and the context within which a sexual union takes place and is most fulfilling. But anyway, that's a long ramble, but I think that, I mean, I don't know, that's kind of my understanding of it. It's like, yeah, I'm sympathetic to that because if you grow up in, if you grew up in the church, especially like later, you know, 90s, if you grew up in church hearing that this is the ultimate point of fulfillment was a, was to get married to your first ever girlfriend. And then you realize that you really aren't really sure if you're into girls, but you got to be fulfilled because that's what the most fulfilled thing is for you. And that's what God has waiting for you. Then, um, yeah, I could, I, I mean, that's a very tough situation and I can totally understand that. And I don't know what to respond to that with. Anyway. Ran over. No, I, no, I think that's that's well met. Um, yeah, the the emphasis of the kind of the pleasure principle that um, Freud is bringing also does get Marcuse and Reich into quite a bit of trouble. In that, I think it's Reich who pretty much explicitly uh, gets caught in saying, or in his inability to uh, go against pedophilia. Um, he pretty much says, like, yeah, if a 15-year-old is into a 13-year-old, go for it. We should be encouraging this. This is something healthy. And then is asked, like, what about a three-year-old? And he's like, well, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be healthy. It's like, why? And he has absolutely no answer. I think the core issue with the critique setting aside more complicated, specific answers is just that the argument is that any that that, that comes from Freud and then filters down through Reich accused uh, to a slightly less sexual degree, but, but, uh, you know, still sufficiently off-putting. Um, there's a, a quote here in the book from, from Reich, and it's that, uh, quote, the existence of strict moral principles has invariably signified that the biological and specifically the sexual needs of man were not being satisfied. Every moral regulation is in itself sex negating and all compulsory morality is life negating. The, the social revolution has no more important task than to finally enable human beings to realize their full potentialities and find gratification in life, end quote. The problem with the issue is exactly what you pointed out, is that there's no limiting principle. There's no alternative vision of what the alternative moral uh, framework that should be set up or adopted uh, is. It's just like, we'll get rid of modesty and all sexual morality 
Rays, and uh, step two, <laughs> step three, Utopia. And that's that's sort of the the process that's gone through. And what has happened and what's been discovered is aside from when the conversation can be purely oppositional on behalf of you know various groups, the final realities that are proposed, there is no final reality, like sexual reality that stands up to things like exactly as, as you were saying, like what is the from principle argument for or against rather pedophilia from Reich's perspective, he can't justify it except for falling back on the, on the Morris because he's removed taboos and the previous sexual ethic as a legitimate source of authority, but there's no alternative. And so you end up in this situation where you have an incompatible, uh, you know, potential future. Once we finally tear down the church and the family, uh, you know, here's, we'll, we'll all finally be happy, but the people who are all advocating for that are not in agreement uh, of what that could possibly look like. And that's a, I, I would say, a constant frustration and, and an issue that periodically bubbles up, but there's still um, perhaps not as often as it should, because uh, the question's not asked, because there's enough to, there's still enough of Christianity and Western civilization to be a purely oppositional force to it. I, I do recall having a uh, conversation with a friend who lamentably went to, where was it? I think Duke Seminary, which somehow Duke Seminary is insane, but still has Stanley Hauerwas. So I'm, I'm really scratching my head at that. But she kept uh, saying something to the effect of, which I, I didn't realize at the time, but is actually quite kind of Marxist in, in overtone of um, like uh, pretty much, oh, we have a moral obligation to burn the system down. Um, eventually I just kind of pinned her down and I was just like, okay, what do you mean by this? And what do we do after? And she was actually kind of flat footed and, and didn't quite know. And I think that's a criticism that a lot of these guys are very vulnerable to is, okay, we burned down the system. Cool. What, what do now? Um, trust I, them, Steven, you need to trust them to figure it out. Once we get there, just put them in uh, charge. Oh, that's always that's, to do that. Yeah, there's a, a footnote that quotes a couple because he discusses the, the the Frankfurt School and um, the various philosophers in that movement. And he cites Roger Scruton's Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, which is a highly entertaining book. I'm actually reading through that now. Are you? Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah I got it on Audible. And... I was reading that when we first met and we had conversations about about Sartre. Sartre. Oh, yeah, yeah. You lectured me on how evil Sartre was. And now you'll finally understand. You'll finally understand and we can be friends again. Uh, but anyway, so that's 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 highly entertaining. Uh, but one of the large points in, in, in the book, and I believe it's probably in his preface, he says, I read all these people so that you don't have to. Because there's a large degree of inscrutability and obfuscation in some of these writers, and which ties directly into what Stephen's saying. There's sort of a, a priestly nature of these thinkers. It's like, if they have it figured out, it's sort of secretly hidden and encoded in their words. Uh, we just got to trust them. We'll get rid of the current thing. Here's some reasons why it's bad. What comes after that? And eh, we'll figure it out. And we're smart enough to do that. And and that's the 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 interesting concept that, that Truman talks about from our cues is the idea of surplus repression, which is sort of goes back to like a little re repression is is good. Like, you know, we can't build cities if, if if everyone is just getting it on all all the time uh but if you do too much repression then that's that, that's the capitalists that are making you do that and, and that's the degree where it's too far on a separate note i did just want to my my takeaway from the topic is is partially to do with what my wife is reading which is uh called the genesis of gender which i might recommend for this podcast or maybe good. we'll choose a, a more purely philosophical uh topic next but it, it sounds really good 
Um, but one of the things that it, it talks about is the centrality of technology and technological intervention to a lot of this sort of utopian-esque thinking about sexual identity in the public sphere. And that's what this chapter gets into a lot with Simone Weil a bit. Um, or wait, no, sorry, Simone de Beauvoir, very different people. Uh, Simone de Beauvoir and, and the centrality of technological intervention, particularly birth control, in their conception of what a woman is and what a, and what a woman should be, but also in terms of reproduction, yeah, you know, in vitro fertilization, all, all sort of things like that is, is very central to um, the, the field of possibilities as to the, the anthropology. In, in other words, the anthropology or like the preferred ideal anthropology is dependent on the technological resources of the society in which they function. And I'm curious, do we think that's sustainable or will it only get well, worse? Is that, are, are we just like seeing fresh hells in the future as technology advances our conception continually evolve and just get worse and worse? That's an interesting take. Uh, Firestone also goes into that quite a bit. Um, interesting. Now, I, I've said before, every time I contemplate the, the technological landscape, I just get more and more depressed. Um, no, I, I, I think it's only gonna, it's only going to get worse. There, yeah, there is no, unless maybe if if I trusted humanity to kind of just collectively get itself uh, get itself together and say, mm, no, we don't like this. We don't like this technology. We are rejecting it. If I trusted it, maybe, but it's not going to like, um, like go full like go full, full Dune, where they just like it's just an uh, all analog society, and you just mm -hmm. do it like analog. Honestly, there is part of me. So I, I think of uh, a canical for Leibowitz in the in the Simpletons, except um, except as a force for good, in that like pretty much everyone just goes through and it's just like, no, nope, this technology was not good for us, and everyone collectively just destroys all their phones and burns down the server farms and hangs the Silicon Valley bros by their ankles. By their ankles, I'm not advocating violence. Um, and it's only for a couple minutes, and then they've learned their lesson, and then we let them go, okay? I'm not advocating actual violence. But I just, I just don't think I'll have it. I am somewhat... It, there, I mean, there's always a remnant. There's always there's always kind of the the deviation. Um, I think of the Amish. I think of the rise of the so-called Luddite teens that I saw the article on, where there are like there are some people that are just kind of starting to realize that this stuff isn't good for us and are going away. But th that's that's the vast, 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 vast minority. Um, so yeah, no, I'll, it's, I'll yeah, it's like community. Like we were talking um, with some friends the other night, and there's a church small group, and I mentioned that I hadn't had social media on my phone for all, for. I just crossed two years without it, mm -hmm. which has been great. And um, and there were like several people in the room who were like, ah, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, I've been off for you know that many, you know, a couple of years, a year, six months. And it's like, oh, like this is super cool that we're all just kind of making this decision together. But also I'm like, well, this is a pretty insulated community. And these are people who are gonna spend three hours on a Wednesday night like analyzing scripture and so and so like what's um I don't know. I, maybe that's maybe I shouldn't be very hopeful. I don't, and, and even then, like, what's the point of deleting a couple of apps? I mean, we're still all on iPhones, so it doesn't really matter. I don't know. I noticed, like, a marked deterioration of my mental state as soon as Lent ended, and I allowed myself to look at Twitter again. I was like, oh, no, I am, I am literally a worse person because of this app, so I need to. I, I saw the article on the Luddite teens, and I, I thought it was a really well-written article and enjoyed it and kind of fantasized about, like, getting rid of my phone and, like, oh, maybe I could actually do it. And then I thought, how, like, GPS, how am I going to get from point A to point B? What about something like Uber? Where, like, I, when I visited DC and needed to go to the one hotel for the, for the conference, I needed an Uber. Like, what about these just very, very basic, simple things that society is now just predicated on? Mm -hmm. You are expected yeah, to have a phone. And 
so with technology in general, it's just, yeah, no, there, the, you can't put, it, Pandora's box has been opened. There's no closing it. And society is now predicated on this. Um, and that molds the way you think. Uh, the, I, the idea of transgenderism 200 years ago extended about as far as clothing, um, maybe like clothing and hairstyle. But now it's, no, we have surgeries that you can actually rudimentarily at least sw swap your genitals. You can... You, you can do that um and the technology is only going to get better that's that's actually it's one of the one of the arguments i really don't like um that conservatives will make uh incidentally they also do it about abortion where they'll bring up um health detriments of abortion and it's like no you're not arguing against abortion all you're doing is arguing that abortion needs to be safer you're just arguing for better surgical techniques yeah um and similar with transgenderism where it's like well these these you know these drugs aren't known to work well or these uh, these surgical procedures aren't like they're not safe or they can go bad. It's like it's like, OK, on the one hand, the fact that a lot of these sort of things are being done and it's kind of dangerous, that does need to be known. And, and people do need to be informed on that. But the only thing you're arguing against is or you're arguing is you need to have better procedures. Once once the procedures yeah. get better, you're going to be completely out of out of arrows. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's and yeah, you got to you got to argue it from like a perspective of actually what's what's good versus again the scientific argument right well and uh, sorry the, that was a, a bit of a side note i guess my main point is we've gone from 200 years ago the i'm actually kind of reminded of neil postman in the medium as a metaphor like technology changes the way you view the world this is no exception 200 years ago transgenderism it just wasn't really on the cards because it was just impossible no of course you can't change your gender but now you can sort of kind of um, and as technology gets better, I mean, like, it, it, yeah, it'll be an interesting landscape as technology changes and improves. Listen, I mean, I, I, I think Wendell Berry is right along this argument, you know, with us, you know, if we just firebombed Monsanto and banned uh, petroleum fertilizer, society would go back to a golden age of, per, of perfection. I think we all agree with that uh, in, in terms of which technology needs to be banned first. But... Uh, <laughs> sorry, none, none, uh, very... Uh, non sequitur, but I suppose that's just average for me. Speaking of average, the article that we're reading today uh, is the age okay. of average. What was that eye roll, Stephen? I, that was, was that too forced of a transition? No, it is. It really is par for the course at this point. <laughs> Perfect. That's, that's exactly what I was going for. Uh, and as it so happens, uh, in the early 1990s, these two Russian artists, and their idea was, you know, they wanted to make a painting and they wanted to make a painting that was exactly what people wanted. So what they did is they interviewed a thousand uh, people, U.S. citizens, and asked them a whole big series of questions like, what's your favorite color? Do you like sharp angles or soft curves? Do you like, you know, thick brush strokes or do you like to be smooth? Uh, do you want to see people outside? You know, should they have clothes on? Leisure, working, indoors, outdoors, what kind of landscape? And they did this across uh, several different countries. And then they painted this painting, this this people's choice painting. What did all of the the people want? Um, and the thing is, and this will be the image for this podcast. All of the paintings basically looked exactly the same. Everyone wanted the same boring landscape. So, just to quote from this article, uh, it says, "Quote: This article argues that creative fields have become dominated and defined by convention and cliche. Distinctiveness has died. In every field we look at, we find everything looks the same." Welcome to the age of average, end quote. And this is a, a fantastic article. I'll make sure in, in the podcast, and I recommend you read it. Basically, this article just goes through all, several realms 
so I'll just go straight to to to, to you guys because you read this article, uh, found it it's striking. Uh, for 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 Very each good. of you, which realm of average did you find the most striking? And and just for a, a quick list of what they are. Uh, interiors, architecture, media, cars, people, self-help books, and brands. Stephen, I think the skyline, at the very least, was most surprising. Um, but first, that people find those skylines attractive is quite remarkable. Uh, I say that, but still, my hey I, now, I do actually kind of hey like now. a skyline. Fair, okay, okay. Seattle so yeah, skyline is the best though. Um, it is. We have Seattle skyline's pretty, uh, pretty good. Uh, I guess I was just surprised that at kind of everyone like. I, I guess that they all look the same. You would think that a city would be very varied. Though, I wonder in, in I guess, not in defense of the article, I guess in an attack of the article, I wonder if that's because the materials uh, used to build skyscrapers are actually not that, like, there's not a ton of them, and so there's only so many shapes a sky, <laughs> there's only so many shapes a skyscraper can take. Like, there's only so many materials that you can use to build these skyscrapers, and so, like, we shouldn't be overly surprised that they all look the same. But on the whole, I am kind of surprised that all the skylines look alike. Sam? See, that's interesting. So I, I, I'll i say the point that I found most compelling or most interesting. But Stephen, I found the skyline one his least persuasive point. And that's not just because I, um, I tell myself how much I love living in New York City. I really do, actually. But I, 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 I love and I get to see New York skyline regularly on the Q train over the Manhattan Bridge. But beyond that point, I don't know. I, I look to the skylines as somebody who's always enjoyed a good city, you know, looking at the city skylines um, in both Seattle when I lived there, would regularly hike up uh, the hill to, to, to spectate that and New York now. They look completely different to me. And so I looked at those. I looked at those eight. I'm like, yeah, they're all totally different. Like, OK, they all have buildings in them. But like Seattle looks better. Seattle wasn't here, but New York looks vastly different than Shanghai, which looks vastly different than Hong Kong with the mountains right in the background, which looks vastly different than Toronto. Um, and yeah, sure, you've got the same general shapes, big, tall building, other smaller ones around it. But like, I don't know. I, I wasn't persuaded by that one, one bit. It actually fairly weakened his argument to me. But uh, the part that was most shocking was the, um, the people all looking the same, partially because, again, I am not on social media. And if I was to be on social media, I wouldn't be looking at necessarily all these influencers. But it was just striking looking at what people are really doing to themselves um, to all look the same. I, I thought the plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, that was eerie. Where she's, what did she say? It was, uh, uh, yeah, thirty percent of people are coming into her office, and they've got a picture of Kim Kardashian. They want to be made to look like, and that was just that was where the article made a turn to me. It was like, wow, we've we've like picked this ideal person, and we all look well, not we, not us dudes, I guess, but still, it's just the like. And I'm saying this is somebody who has prosopagnosia. So maybe that was like, I guess it was striking to, I just kind of always thought everybody looked the same. Uh, and then it was kind of interesting to load at like, oh, this is actually a social phenomenon that's going on. It isn't just me here. So that was, yeah, that's like, where, you know, very striking. Anyway. That's somewhat funny because at first I was really surprised and I forgot about that quote. And that is honestly terrifying. Um, but at first I was kind of surprised, but then I, I took another look at the set of faces and I, I, I don't know. They don't look that similar to me. Like they're all, I guess they're all hot late 20 something year old women, I guess. But like, other than that, it's it, like, they all, they all look pretty distinctive, I guess. Uh, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't quite, so it's funny. You don't find the skyline argument convincing. I don't find the, mm. I, I, at least I'm, I'm looking at it now. It's like, no, they all, they all look reasonably different. They have different clothes, different hair. 
uh, I guess their faces are all kind of structured similarly, but even, yeah, I don't know. Uh, unmarried, Steven, and this, you know, I'm not going to say this explains a lot. <laughs> I forgot, I'm talking to two, two, two married men who obviously <laughs> <Yeah>. didn't look at... <laughs> just completely glazed all right well let me make a a, a brief defense of the article against both of these points uh these weaknesses perhaps and then uh talking which one i think is most distinctive so the first to the faces the the key is and i think if we're if we're looking at them the key is not that obviously you know there are some different races represented some different uh body types and such but the key thing is to look at the details everyone has full lips everyone has slightly sunken cheeks contoured high upper cheekbones and uh vaguely pointy noses as well all of these are just slight modifications that that go into the instagram look and then all and that's also the uh what the filters do to you um, so that's that's what it is. Is it's 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 in the details that everything that there's a converging effect of it. Not that everyone you know looks precisely the same, but rather that everyone's making the details to all sort of converge towards the same thing. Uh, in terms of the skyline, I think you're you're vaguely right that that the, that the skyline is the weakest point. I think the strongest point is uh, talking about the five over ones, the the housing units, because I see these oh, yeah. freaking everywhere. The he he calls well, it especially by, you. Uh, I mean, where you live is like is like cent- yes. is like center for these things. So. Make urbanism hell, uh, or fast casual architecture, five over ones, and the, all over every part of the suburbs, or like just before the suburbs of DC, these buildings are just freaking everywhere and i assume they're popping up in, in new york basically uh, there's a Not south park episode. because it's so ex- it's so expensive to build here so like if you're mm. going to build something you're going to build like a like a, a rather large like a, a taller and more interesting new building because you're already sinking mm. like tens of millions of dollars into it so there is that advantage right he makes the argument that actually expensive new york these are popping up because they're so cheap but in new york you're already investing the amount of money so you can actually do something that's Mm. if not beautiful at least interesting you know i never thought i would be grateful that the new york construction firms being controlled by the mafia was a good thing there you go preserving the flavor of the place but the the i'm sure that you've you've seen these buildings um and and again i would recommend that whoever's listening read the article but it's this sort of like blocky slightly colorful brick uh maybe two or three toned uh buildings that'll basically be either four or, or or five stories over the over the lot and it's you know like townhomes condos that that kind of thing and that's that's the style that i that i've seen taken over a, a lot of this area however the part that was most striking for me in this article was in the interiors and i think listen i'm not gonna say that i was talking about this before it was cool but i was talking about this before it was cool because i remember back in 2016 and i was in europe uh after study abroad and we were hopping around in between countries going from airbnb to and I just had this this thought and this feeling. All of these places look exactly the same, and the article has perfectly captured that you know weird nagging feeling that's followed me ever since. That there's an Airbnb aesthetic, this international style, and it describes it as you know white walls, raw wood, Nespresso machines, those like sort of wood, white plastic, and and, and wood uh, legged chairs, bare brick, open shelving, and Edison bulbs, obviously everywhere, uh, and that. This style called that they call uh, international Airbnb or airspace or Brooklyn style was the other name for it. So maybe uh, Sam Sam can speak they, to that. They they look like we have a good friend here, and they they these literally look like their apartments. Um, it's hilarious. Well, there you go. And it's also come into I mean coffee shops and fast food restaurants too. You know, you sort of have 
you know, the, the wooden tables, uh, sunlight, it's like sort of austere, again, the Edison bulbs freaking everywhere. Even the remodel of McDonald's that happened a, a couple of years ago from, you know, joyous, you know, slightly dirty uh, neon plastic, you know, back in the good old days to its, its modern sort of uh, fast, casual, slightly more formal style. That's even a little bit of the same, a little bit of that same international blandness that's, that, that's just basically feels like it's, it's seeped in everywhere. So one one question that I had, I think this might be the most important one, because this article goes through, it goes through cars, cars all look the same, people all look the same, media kind of all looks the same, everything's a remake, and like, that's a bit, that's statistically true, not just, it's not just a feeling. Brands all look the same. So my question to you is, you know, what is one's imperative, either morally, for, for the sake of your sanity, personality-wise? What is the properly ordered response to a world like this? Is there one? Uh, or do we just sit back and let it happen? So I guess there are two, two responses to this, or two kind of aspects of this. On the one hand, this just in, like, humans are the same. Or, like, we all are, we're all humans. We all have similar preferences. Yes, we like blue because it reminds us of water. Like, we we like movie posters that feature i don't know apparently according to this eyes if in our horror because it, i don't I, I i don't know but like i i think i would say if anything like it kind of enforces the idea of something transcendent uh not in the case of the horror movie eyes but the fact that like we are all attracted to the beautiful and so like yes we should be seeing trends we i hope we see trends um that's the optimistic take um when i look at all the the corporate trash and the um I, I don't know the the, the Starbucks uh, similarities and and kind of everything converging. It reminds me of the article that we read um, on refinement culture. I guess as as I want to, I fall back to David Foster Wallace and say the the, the answer to this is be authentic. If if what attracts you to, for example, these interiors is that they they look cozy, which they objectively don't. But if if you see a trend and you like it and you you've thought about it and you genuinely think that this is a good thing for humanity to pursue. Awesome. I'm glad everything's, everyone's pursuing it. If on the other hand, like it's just another piece of corporate trash that is catching on because it's easy to make and people vaguely like it. I yeah, then, then that's more troubling. So authenticity, David Foster. Uh, that's interesting. Cause you say that. Cause like, I, I feel like that's maybe one of the harder critiques against the article. Here, here we are. Uh, seeing the inverse here again, but it's, um, you know, it, it, I don't, what was striking about this article is that it, none of it was corporate trash. I mean, most of this, I mean, except for the logos and stuff, but this is mostly ground up developments. I mean, cause he looks at like, cause like these Airbnbs, for example, like Brevin, this is a sort of Airbnb that we would rent when we, when we go on a trip with our wives, like out of, you know, in our fall trip, right. This is the sort of thing that we want to do. These are Airbnbs you look at and you say, it's cool. It looks nice. The coffee shops, I'd far prefer a coffee shop like this to a Starbucks or to, you know, God forbid, a Dunkin' Donuts, right? These are comfortable spaces to inhabit. Um, And yeah, you can say it's overkill, but like in general, it's overkill because we've reached a mean of like, this is, this is generally like comfortable. And we're, we in a globalized context understand this and receive this sort of sort of rustic but cushy as um as comfortable S- similar with the cars right they, they he makes fun of the wind tunnel 
but we've saved immense amounts of resources by by the by by kind of re- realizing the 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 uh, best form of a car, and you can't really improve on that. We've we've reached the peak of aerodynamics with with the standard car for the amount of uh, material they transport, and these houses. The reason they look like that is because it's cheap, and it's and you could say that's corporate, but most of these are developed by smaller developers, and they're able to keep rent prices low, which ultimately lead lead, lead to better quality of life. Now, I'm not defending the article, or I'm not defending what the article is critiquing. I think that this universalization is bad, but it's just worth noting that this isn't necess- It's from the ground up. It's naturally realizing that these are conclusions that. This is what people, this is where people want to vacation. This is where people want to rest and have a cup of coffee. This is what people, what helps them um, sustain themselves economically. And it's just kind of weird to reach an objective conclusion to that and realize that it's ugly and gross and nauseating. Um, That's where it's hard for me is I don't really know what to do with it at that point because like, yeah, it's true. Like I'm not going to buy a car that doesn't look like that because it's going to be it's going to get 10 miles less to the gallon. Um, you know, I don't know. I guess it's, it, that's why the article is hard for me is because it's, it's wholly democratic. What would you, I guess, is that, is that a fair take or? Yeah. I think the only thing I recall that might contradict is um, discussion on movie posters. Oscar winning director, Steven Soderbergh argues that this is the result of testing. If you've ever wondered why every poster and every trailer and every TV spot looks exactly the same, it's because of testing. It's because anything interesting scores poorly and gets kicked out. I've tried to argue that maybe the thing that's making it distinctive, um, sorry, I've tried to, uh, to argue that maybe the thing that's making it distinctive and score poorly actually would stick out if you presented it to the people the way the real, real world presents it. And I've never won that argument. So that one, there are a few cases where it does sound like, okay, this this seems like it's people playing it safe. And that if I'm designing my Airbnb, for example, like I want to design this for 90% of the population. I don't care about the 10% that have a, a really well-cultivated aesthetic palette. I want this to sell. I'm not interested in those 10% of people. Those 10% of people are probably not even looking for an Airbnb in the first place. I'm interested in the 90%. And so it's just it's just more of an economic um, thing, which I think, to be fair, that's that's your main point, Sam. He does make corporate points lower down here, and I wouldn't want to like discount those. Like, yeah, the corporations, like, that's terrible. But like the higher, the earlier points about the Airbnbs, coffee shops, cars, and stuff, where I think it's a little bit more gray. Yeah. I think my, my argument... Um against against all of this is just sort of the the argument from a um small c conservatism uh home and home and family life where where you live in and what's your location which is to say that all of this has the effect of i actually to bring in walker percy making us entirely homeless everywhere is the same nowhere is home lifeless completely devoid of any unique characteristics uh consumerist economic optimized void and what better situation than to utterly kill the soul frankly to disconnect you from every location that you're in your in entire life to make every location purely contractual nothing nothing relational nothing unique nothing grounded i mean uh, to call back to the architecture point and you know this might be a bit dated of an argument, but you know, cities used to be distinctive in part because they were built with what was nearby. And, and if everything is built with the same materials, you know, one place might as well be any other place. And there's no point 
to being anywhere. And there's two sides to that. One, that can be very convenient if you happen to have the money that's able to, or, you know, work from home or be able to do whatever it is to be a rootless individual and like, you know, go out and, and, and find it. But for just as us as physically existing in a location, I think that there is something that is lost and dangerous about being a disconnected automaton and our relationship to locations does not change depending where we are. And the precise nature of our location is, you know, identical all throughout the world and only determined by how much money is in our bank account. I think there's a lot of uh, dangers to the soul that come with that. I think you are, you, you guys are correct that it is a, a bit of a, a loose argument and the precise response is difficult, but I don't know. I, I, I feel vaguely inspired to like go find a nearby quarry and just grab some rocks to put in my house so I can, so, so that I'm actually from this location that I'm at, you know, instead of just buying stuff on, on, on Amazon all, all the time. I don't know. That would be my direction. Um, I'm not sure what the individual responses but i feel like there's something here that has to be fleshed out i think the long game is like the these sort of trends are here because economic incentive incentives um at least that's that's what it seems and both because material is cheaper if you have a general template it's easier to just copy paste the general template than redesigning something every time but i think a lot of it is yeah for the last 50 years we've been pretty much told that aesthetics don't matter and so this is the natural apotheosis of such. And so play the concert. I mean, everyone who loves good aesthetics needs to inculcate aesthetics to the next generation. And hopefully they'll get us out of the, this mess because I don't know. It doesn't seem to be changing much at, at the moment. No. I'm scrolling through this article, this link that he had at the bottom of the article on all the Instagram repeats. Painful. Anyway, that's all. Bad. Does it make you mad, Sam? It does. Yeah, well, when one is mad, you know, one, one thing you can do is rant. Sam, do you have a rant? I do. Yeah. Um, so as many of our couple listeners know, we are all big board gamers here at The Problem With Reading. It's a bit of a side hobby for all of us. And it gets heated. Hour eight, Twilight Imperium rolls around and, you know, it, it, gets, it gets pretty tense. Um, You're selling yourself short, Sam. And I, hour 12 of 16, it gets tense. Yeah, our total 60 gets tense. Everyone's standing. You're all yelling. Friendships are dying in that moment. It's great. And somebody comes away, Victor, after a well-thought victory. Um, I found a game last night that might equal or surpass or, or surpass that level of tension. It's cribbage. This freaking game. All luck, I'm convinced. But man, the insults, the anger that wells up over this game as you intensely peg your way closer and closer to the end and then finally somebody wins definitively without question everyone go and the other two players go home disappointed um it's a wonderful game i've never played it before and i loved it um and what really gets me about it i think what makes it so intense is that you there's no there's very little shared information and so you make a move really general like randomly and it will totally screw over your opponents and so they can be completely mad at you and you have no way to prevent it and so the entire game is just everybody's rage ratcheting up farther and farther as you're just randomly playing these cards trying desperately to maybe have a shot at scoring it's a great game i encourage everybody to try it i ran from it for years as only suited for um people over the age of 60 which is probably the case but if we're getting rid of our phones anyway i mean we're basically there listen i'm just looking this uh this up on wikipedia i have always seen this like my parents had a cribbage board and i just had no idea how to use it and i'm inspired to 
to look we're, into this because I think next it'd time be, we're together, guys, we're gonna we're gonna play cribbage and, and have a cigar. It's gonna be great. Oh, I'm here. Fantastic. For that. We are just going to turn into old British gentlemen quoting poetry. Uh, but speaking of that, my rant is poetry. So for the month of March, I embarked upon a attempt to become a poetry guy. So I read around 100 poems sort of randomly selected from a list of 100 most influential poems or something like that. And I read them alphabetically. It's very interesting because it put like Annabelle Lee by Poe right next to America by Ginsburg. It was just, you know, a delightful uh, and, and, and horrifying contrast. Um, I found many that I liked, many that I didn't care for, but the overall takeaway I think that I had was something that I'm grateful that I'm learned, but also vaguely frustrated by, which is to say that it is quite hard to read poetry well, because you need to read poetry with a certain frame of mind, I think. You need to read it with a certain amount of charity and a mindset where you are taking it seriously and giving the author credit. Um, but that's an incredibly hard mindset to be in, at least for me. So it, it was it very difficult to see how it could integrate uh, into one's life. The other side of that problem, and, and this is what I'm perhaps more frustrated about, is, is just sort of what I learned the the state of modern poetry. Um, so setting aside modern styles, there's fascinating uh, stuff that if, if you're interested at all, Dana Joya, uh, poet laureate of California, or, or at least he was, speaks about this very eloquently, that poetry has just been captured by this um, production machine of uh, professional poets writing po poems to be read by other poets, creative writing class. And it's created this environment of overproduction under readership um, that has removed, in, in, in a sense, poetry from the public square in a way that was sort of unimaginable for people back in the day where poets were, you know, poems were published in newspapers, but that's simply not the case anymore. And there's a strange professionalization of poetry that makes, at least in my like attempt to find modern poetry to read, basically un unreadable. I, I truly have no answer here, but I think we're all somewhat Im impoverished from the lyric mode being removed from our lives. But alas, I, I do not see a way forward. So that is that is my rant for today. Uh, Stephen, how about yourself? I do. We've uh, we've spoken about the technological hellscape and the corporate garbage and whatnot, and. Uh, this actually ties in quite well with mine. So I have a confession to make. When I was in high school, I was actually a massive hardcore fan. Uh, well, in uh, I guess to be fair, in the only way that a good Christian boy can be, in that I listened to Demon Hunter, O Sleeper, Haste the Day, and other good Christian screamo and screamo Jason bands. Um, it was a time, every so often, I look back, chuckle, shake my head, and move on. However, one band from that era has done a surprisingly good job sticking with me over the years, and that is Project 86. Uh, it's not quite hardcore screamo, I think uh, technically designated as post-hardcore. And uh, they have this rather unique sound and some really clever ideas. They've definitely ranged in quality over the years. Um, but my, my personal favorite or album is called Truthless Heroes. And it's just one long homage to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Like I said, listening to them off and on in the past decade, they've aged reasonably well. And that brings me to Omni. Uh, sadly, their last album, and it is quite the send-off. Uh, part one just came out. I've listened to it quite a bit, and I'm left as I want to be in quite the malaise. Uh, in it, they've envisioned every Silicon Valley tech bros fever dream, a dystopic technological hellscape completely devoid of meaning or substance. Songs like Virtual Signal, Apotheosis, and Zero Greater Than One are filled with lyrics such as, picking out a few highlights, with Virtual Signal, we crater ourselves to, to play the traitors. 
Analog screams fill the LEDs inside the town square. I am the need for you to be seen, your rampant entitlement. You made the choice the moment you hit submit. And then, we are the tower that pierces the sky. By this our hearts speak as one. As below, so above. As below, so above. By this we ascend and crack the firmament. Obviously some very angsty, very edgy stuff. Which, to be fair, hardcore has always been. Um, but my intrigue with this album is that, like quite a lot of artists I really admire, they seem to have their fingers on a pulse. Like, they they get something. They're, they're, they're seeing an issue. And there's something that really resonates. Uh, well, at least with me. Um, in the despair, the horror of this mindless world that they've envisioned, uh, this illegitimate child of Aldous Huxley and, and Steve Jobs, the blind optimism of a Silicon Valley that we will, in the words of Nyander Wallace from Blade Runner 2049, storm Eden and retake her. All that to say, Project A6, a very edgy, well done to you for a 25-year-long run that's culminating in quite the send-off. Um, and then, I was going to go on a whole other thing about Owl City, because they also just came out with an album that is honestly quite delightful, but I've already taken up enough time. But let's say, super edgy Project A6, and then just like... A little bit less edgy. Owl City's, Owl City's a little bit less edgy. He feels like a guy that just wants to give everyone a hug. And I really like Al City. It's it's cheesy. It's at times a little bit a little bit over the top sickly sweet, but man, he he just clearly has such a heart. And I I can't not like him. Um I play Hello Seattle. I play the song whenever I am driving from the airport home and I see the skyline for the first time. I think that may have to be our our outro song today because uh, we're Actually, not going to get yes. a copy strike for it because uh, no one listens to the podcast. Or, well, sorry, our no. listener does. But aside from that, um, they won't. Well, our um, listener gets to enjoy Owl City without pay, buying the song on iTunes or mm-hmm. going down to the to the record store and buying the CD um, or buy, you're even buying a Spotify subscription. Yeah, this is, this is all very there true. Uh, so I won't keep you, dear listener, from Owl City any longer. So for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast i'm brevin i'm steven and i'm sam and you would not believe your eyes if 10 million fireflies i actually forget the next line of that song ah darn it (laughs) the one i know the one i know is the one i used to listen to in college with my roommate where it was just the one where the whole song was you would not believe your eyes (laughs) (laughs) what is this maybe this needs to be the opportunity just repeating that line over and over (laughs) Yeah, it'll let me find it.